Welcome, welcome. Thanks for tuning in. Today's podcast will discuss the power of collective organizing, especially for marginalized communities, specifically the Black community, as a means to move from just surviving to thriving now and post-COVID-19. I'm your host and facilitator, Melanie Blackman, currently an administrator at U of T Scarborough in community development, and I'm also an MED student taking the intro to workplace and organizational economic democracy. Both roles bring much learning on collective organizing. On a more personal note, I am a Black woman who has worked and volunteered as a frontline worker in marginalized communities, and I have witnessed and experienced the systemic inequities and injustices um, that have been reinforced by anti-Black racism that has that has and is deeply embedded in structural systems um, in our institutions here in the GTA. The pandemic only heightened our failing systems and economy and presents us an opportunity to rethink the ways that we organize. Critical to our way forward are the leaders in the Black communities that have been doing this work long before COVID-19. We'll be hearing from two grassroots leaders. First, um, Executive Director of C-Center Toronto, Agape Gisese, and then founder of She's Got the Power and a Dope Girls Guide podcast, Natasha Gray, to share their insight on collective organizing. I will let them do their intros. Uh, yeah, so as you mentioned, I am an Executive Director of an organization called C Center for Young Black Professionals. And our mandate and our mission at C is for us to create an economy and a society where Black youth can strive financially and be able to have a high quality of life um, to be able to contribute to uh, the Canadian labor force and, and the economy in a real way. Perfect. Thank you. Natasha. Hello. Thank you so much. So basically, I have a podcast where I talk about issues that we tackle as human beings on a daily basis and how to um, overcome those with excellence. Not only that, I have a girls empowerment program where we advocate for youth socially emotionally and psychologically. Uh, we empower young individuals to be excellent individuals in this society and today. Awesome. First of all, before we go on, I just wanted to thank you both um, for the work that you have been doing for many years and we can see and we will see throughout the conversation how necessary um, people like yourself and a lot of other people that continue to organize for the Black community. COVID-19 has kind of showed us um, the shortcomings of our society. We see that racialized communities like Black and Indigenous communities more specifically are disproportionately affected by this pandemic. We can't say we're surprised because these communities also um, suffer um, and experience a lot of daily barriers um, like food insecurity, job insecurity, housing insecurity. And this is because of the structural um, prejudice that exists. Um, so we can't say that we are surprised. Thanks to the work of the Confronting Anti-Black Racism 
unit in the city and other Black-led organizations, the province is only now starting to collect race-based data. Um, talking about other shifts, when COVID first happened, it was a huge crisis. The economy was falling apart. And then we start to see a shift. People started rallying around each other. Communities were coming together um, to say thank you to healthcare providers. There were birthday parade, parades. Um, there were also um, donations, people going to the grocery for their neighbors. Also, um, there was an escalation um, of violence against the Black community, racial violence, really, anti-Black violence. Um, and we saw this with the death of George Floyd, or I should say the murder of George Floyd. And with this, we also saw an increase in support for the Black community. Um, by not by the non-black community, which was very different, which was out of the norm. We've seen many people protesting in this time, um, lots of support on social media. Black Lives Matter is constantly trending. Um, so when thinking about the shift from a crisis economy um, and more to a care economy, do we see this as a solution for the Black community as a way forward post-COVID? Is it enough? Is it enough to fight um, racial injustice? You know, um, that's the question that I'll throw to you. I think the idea of care is, should be, um, we should define what that looks like. I think mm -hmm. that we would agree and those that work in the community would agree that it's not just I mean, I like the initiative that's gone forth in terms of um, just there's a collective idea that, you know, it's on social media, we're all seeing it, the visualization is there. But um, I definitely see and and I I see and I, I believe that there should be more done in terms of going deeper to figure out what we really are doing as a community, what we're doing as, um, as individuals that are putting on programs, as um, mothers, fathers, as community workers, going deep to figure out uh, how we can actually solve this issue into, as it concerns poverty, as it concerns um, education. I think that, I think Agape could talk to this more from the place of being able to provide resources and what that really looks like. I like, I do, I will say that I do like the idea that we're going deeper to figure out, like to, to highlight social, social inadequacies, mm -hmm. you know, being able to, you know, there's birthdays that people are doing drive-by birthdays. So we're seeing that people are weighing more on the emotional aspects of life. And we're seeing that there's more value being put on those things that don't require monetary, don't have monetary value or monetary exchange. Mm -hmm. But I do think that, we should be um, really addressing the real root causes of um, a lot of the issues that people are experiencing now as it regards, as it concerns COVID, like housing, um, employment, and um, psychological resources that are in place because there's a lot going on. But to answer your question, I do like the idea of us caring, but I do think that we should go deeper to figure out what really we need to be doing to create change. But mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I think Agape could definitely talk to this a bit more. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a few, I think two things are happening, right? I think we had two kind of waves of, um, and I think it's important for us to also recognize why this is so impactful. And mm-hmm. during COVID, everyone's inside, right? right? So in the beginning of COVID, everyone was just shell-shocked as to what that meant for them and their household and their community. Right. And I think everyone kind of adjusted to what that looked like. Mm-hmm. For Black communities, and you know, I can speak to the folks that we serve at sea, you know, we have 266 young people Um, that are our members we right off the bat like in week one of everything shutting down we had 142 young people saying we are in like a code red code yellow we need food access we need um, baby supplies we need to pay our rent etc 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 and I think a lot of the time um, you know the government is of course trying their best but I think also creating a narrative that you know everyone's being taken care of and that's just not true uh you you know yes you can defer your rent but you're still going to need to come up with that money uh Mm -hmm. yes you're going to be able to collect sir but in the beginning you had to be able to you had to file your taxes and so as an agency we're trying to meet the needs of everybody filing their taxes and then it's like oh no wait psych you know (laughs) we found a better way you could do it this way and so there's a lot of system navigation that was um that was difficult to to manage. And so I think in the beginning stages, everyone is very frantic, but at the end of the day, I think it's very clear, unfortunately in this country, race and class go hand in hand. Uh-huh. So our communities were left, um, left behind in a lot of ways because the resources were just not necessarily there. Uh-huh. Now, I think everyone had kind of gotten used to being home. And when everyone is home, nothing's happening out externally. Like you're uh-huh. not, hearing a celebrity did this or somebody like the news is just not as uh frequent like nothing other than COVID 19 right and so when we when we saw george floyd and i like to say that his he was a catalyst for for Mm -hmm. what place but everyone was home and everyone was able to watch and see what our community has had to watch and see time and time and time and time again. I think this was an opportunity for everybody to see what is happening. And then Mm -hmm. the second wave of saying, oh, wow, Black people are actually being killed. And I think it's important for us to also recognize that it took somebody um, being murdered live in front of our faces Mm -hmm. for everyone to realize, oh, wow, you know, Black communities and the Black and black people are being treated very poorly in this North America, in this world, really. And so I hear you on the care, but I also think it's more just the heightened awareness. Right. Uh, you kind of yeah. can't not care. Right. So right. what does that what does that care look like, and how is that demonstrated now that you know what you what our community has known for a very long time? You know, here we are. That's perfect, and I think um, you both touched on that. Um, very well. Um, the the building of awareness has brought us to this point um, for action, right? And what does this action, and I should say, what does this collective action actually look like for our communities and really for broader, like even for just the economy? How can things be shaped differently so that all people can not just survive, but thrive, right? Because that is not the case right now. 
Yeah, well, I think that it's important to acknowledge that our communities have been doing this type of work for a very long time. I mean, every, and I think we were talking about this before we started, was around, you know, susus and partners, and, you know, we call it a coob, like all of those models of saving money uh, as a collective and, and each family kind of receiving it as we go along. I also think that it's important for us to also acknowledge that in history, I think a lot of people say, well, why aren't we doing what, you know, the Jewish community does? And why aren't we doing what, what other groups are doing? And I think that a lot of the time, um, I think the difficulty in the Black community is that we, we don't necessarily have one faith, right? Uh, we are, like, very diverse in our Blackness. And so all of those other communities are kind of hold on to one faith base. And so it's really easy to have people come around that. But I also think that we've been doing this for a very long time. There's been the, you know, Black Farmers, there's been Black Wall Street, and all of those, all of those initiatives. Um, and if you look at the American, or even in Nova Scotia, Africaville, there, all of these models have been destroyed at some point in time, they come to a place where they grow, and, and they start to become thriving. And then systemic racism kicks in and and it's destroyed in the same way that we see that happen um it, it just in like individuals lives i think collectives like that we uh -huh. if, i think that it's been tried and i think a lot of the time people say oh well why isn't the black community doing what other communities are doing and i don't think that's fair and i want to just end by saying by giving an example around something that we're we've done at sea at the beginning of COVID-19, we run a community of practice of other Black-led, Black-serving organizations. And we partnered with an organization called NAPSI, um, the, the Network for the Advancement of Black Communities. And we collected data from across the country. And then we wrote a local report using our community of practice members to say, this is the emergency need for 40 organizations. And we wrote a report and we put in a request. That was answered by the city with a $1.1 million contribution and by the province with a $1.5 million contribution. So that collective effort and collective sound voice actually does work and we do it. I just don't think that, I think the narrative is that we all just can't work together. We all can't, when in many small ways, inherently, we have always had to rely on our own communities and so we have been doing this type of thing for a very long time. So it does work. And I think that we need more of it. Perfect. Natasha. Um, I definitely love this. And I love that this is like so many, this, there's so many layers to this. First, I want to talk about this idea where you talked about surviving versus thriving. I ended up talking a bit about surviving versus coping in my last podcast, where I was able to address the fact that as a Black community, we need to switch our gears and switch our, um, our default modes where within ourselves, within our minds, within what we're, we naturally do from um, just surviving. And surviving says, First of all, let's just address surviving says, I'm just going to do what I need to do to be afloat. And thriving says, I have an abundance of what I need and it's overflowing mm -hmm. so that I can do the rest of help everybody around me. Okay. So the only way we can do that as a community is if we heal. And part of that healing process goes to part of the healing process, a major part actually, and the key to the healing process um, 
in the black community is to go to the root of a lot of what we are i think we we can't do away with it i can't say okay you know i think that's that's also another piece i don't really even know if i should really go into that but that's a, another piece of um sometimes the downfall is that we look at models and we say well that didn't let's do away with that because that didn't work but we have to take models that worked and collectively come together with that that idea of independence i think mm -hmm. we will be successful right yeah i think that's great and i think this is a great intersection with um jessica gordon nabard's book collective courage um which she um highlights the fact that the history um the story of um african american um success has been really around underdevelopment discrimination and a lack of control and um, that's what we're talking about here not the fact that um, collective organizing has something is something that we need to start today but it's something that we've always had in our communities and maybe is a way that it's it's a way that we can continue to elevate our communities um, by you know making sure that there is membership member ownership um, pooling of assets and also so that we can have control um, to continue to build that community wealth um, so i hear that you're both saying this and natasha you mentioned the youth perspective and i think that's where i kind of want to finish off um, with this idea yes we know that this is something that we've almost been forced to do um, in order to survive right and um, some of our thrivings have come from the fact of our collective organizing. Is this something that we think our, this model, um, is this something that our youth, the young people um, of the next generation, is this something that they would be interested in? Or is this an uphill battle that maybe this is too far-fetched for them? I don't really want to, you know, do joint ownership with my friends. I want to be independent. Is this something that would resonate with them from a young age or is there a lot of learning that has to be done go ahead well i think that in our community um i think a lot of our elders are fatigued and mm -hmm. i think that they've tried and they, they've tried different models and they've tried to you know had challenges working with each other etc and i think um what we're seeing in this world now is like people really just like are like no not me you know the next generation gen z and mm -hmm. um the millennials are just like we're just not having yeah, that. Right. And yeah i think even in the leadership that i see even in the social service sector of younger leaders you know we're i don't think we're much interested in the politicking more yeah. than we are mm -hmm. in results right mm -hmm. and so i think that you know, for years we've been hearing about, oh, millennials are so entitled. We're just like, you know, I often use the, the phrase, like my parents, if somebody tells me to do something that I just don't think is worth, I'm like, my parents didn't come to this country for me to do that, you know? And I think that we acknowledge the sacrifice yeah. of our parents and right. like, we're just not trying to repeat that. Like, I'm not trying to do what my parents or my, or the people who came before me had just finished telling you, you know, yeah. like you've been, you've been told. And so, yeah. I think that we're seeing it in the streets and in the protests. And, you know, even I had a conversation with Mayor John Tory yesterday and he, and I asked him straight out, like, do you think that Black Lives Matter movement and them refusing to speak to him 
was a catalyst for creating the confronting anti-black racism department at the city of Toronto that that our generations before us tried for 41 years. So mm-hmm. it took 41 years and then it took our generation to be like, no, we're not having that. So do I think that we are, that this generation is interested in that? Yes, for sure. They're interested in like reparations in a real way. Like we're not taking no for an answer. Like you're going to give it to us. And I think we're going to finally, um, I hope in our generation and, the, and even the Gen Z, cause I'm a millennial, but, um, the generation after us, I think in our lifetimes, that mm-hmm. con- concept of if you can't convert the people, convert the land yeah. is going to be very real. Like you're either going to get on this, uh, get on this um, train or you're not because we're actually just as more educated. We've had a chance, uh, a couple of generations to get to have the same level of education as you, the same type of credentials as you. And then on top of that, uh, our generation is also grew up with the concept that you have to be 10 times better, 10 times greater, always uh-huh. strive for greatness. So it's like, I just think that, yeah, if it's not going to be hit, if you're not going to hear or understand and come on board, I think you're going to see what we're seeing right now. And nobody's the young people of this generation, black people of color in this country in North America, across the world, like they're just not having it anymore. Yeah. Natasha. I, I think, I think that it's so awesome because, you know, as we talk about, you know, as you talk about the elders and you talk about Gen X and you talk about what, you know, I, I immediately think human behavior. I think no matter what, humans desire, desire the same things. We want to be accepted, we want to be loved, and we want to be heard. And I think this idea of pooling together assets and being able to um, come to a collective agreement and, um, you know, uh, um, Mel, you talked about being able to have a cooperative model and mm-hmm. that would look like, I think that the young people would be about it because uh, when I mention human behavior, I think that the idea of coming together cooperatively uh-huh. says that everyone has ownership. I think youth want ownership. Youth want ownership and youth want control. And I think coming together and having everybody being um, all individuals in a, in a coming together and having all individuals, all members being able to touch a part of what they're doing says mm-hmm. that I have ownership and I have control over what I'm doing. And I think that's what right now I'm doing. A, I'm doing a, you know, a, a finance course with mm-hmm. a couple of young individuals. And one of the things that I am teaching about money is that you are in control. And I think that's when people become empowered as it concerns their finances and become empowered as it concerns politics and, and various things that are going on in today's society is that when someone feels like they're in control and they have ownership and they can be able to determine maybe an outcome and have a part in the outcome, I think it makes a difference. And I think that's what we need to be doing. And I think having a cooperative idea and a cooperative model um, and introducing that to youth, I think would be a phenomenal simply for the fact that it tells them that I can have ownership and I, I can have control over what it is that I'm doing, right? I think, yeah, if we can introduce that in various ways and various models, and at the same time, keeping that foundational um, perspective in place, which is independence, I think it will be s- successful for sure. Yeah, I think that's great. Um... 
two things. Um, Agape, really, what I was hearing you say was talking about the privilege that um, we as millennials and Generation Z have kind of accumulated based on our parents um, and the sacrifices that we've made. And yes, um, this generation, we will continue, there's a desire to continue to resist these systems of oppression, but really um, a deeper push into action towards reparation, um, which I think that that is the key and the collective organizing is at the center of that. Um, Natasha, I really like that you were mentioning healing like as a community and actually I'll mention um, a few, maybe it was a month ago, see Toronto, um, they held a session on trauma and it was by one of the social workers and the directors there, but I specifically remember um, this piece about trauma, right? And trauma really being um, like a lack of control, control being taken away, right? And I think um, even when we're talking about collective organizing and cooperative models, it is a way for our community to take back some of this control and make the decisions that are best for us, by us. Um, so I want to thank you both for coming on and having this discussion. Um, I think we can all agree that collective organizing is possibly, maybe it started with our communities, right? This is a way that, this is something that has always been a part of our community. Um, and, you know, it's something that we should stick to as we think about a way forward and actually having um, actionable items towards reparations, Agape, I really like that. And Natasha, along with reparations that we continue to heal, acknowledge that there is a collective trauma that we've experienced as Black people and a way to take back the, that control in the economy is to focus on collective organizing. Was there anything else you um, wanted to add? Just as you, and I wanted to say earlier, but I also acknowledge it seems to be 10 minutes. So, uh, <laughs> but I think it's, I think if you look at what our people have done and I, people often think slavery was a thing that happened in the United States, it happened in Canada, it has mm -hmm. happened, you know, genocide in Africa. Um, yes. Colonization has happened there as well. But if you look at the creativity of black people and how we have had no choice but to work together i just really th that type of um narrative that we don't know how to work together is just really upsets me sometimes because you know even in how we were we were braiding maps in people's yeah. hair we were creating songs and and you know that had stories of how you can get to a safe place, et cetera. We had the green book, you know, where to, where to go and where not to go, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we've always had to be, um, have each other's back in that way. And so I think that's just another add to our organizational spirit. Teaching that model. And this is where the youth perspective comes in. If we're teaching at a young age and we're saying, this is what we need to do. We need to teach our young individuals. We need to teach our children and create a culture where we're saying we need to be independent and build and thrive collectively together. I think that's the difference. And I think that is where we end up transitioning from 
from surviving to really thriving. And mm-hmm. it's, it comes together. I'm smiling as I hear what Agape is saying because um, that, that really is it. Part of our healing and our restoration and us coming together is um, understanding that we have all that we need. We are creative. We, we lack nothing. If we can come together and understand that we are the real resources, we sky's the limit with what we can do, you know? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah, I like that. And I forgot I'm reading a book on black farming and it's talking about um, people braiding seeds into their hair, right? So, um, you know, there's so many things. Yes, there's resistance, but there's also preservation in mm-hmm. the stories, you know, for us to keep us healthy, we have to preserve. And a yeah. way of preservation is for us to be creative, but to do this um, collective organizing. It is a part of who we are. Um, and I definitely think um, this, this is something that we, can, we should continue to push and highlight as we think about um, alternatives post-COVID-19. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, ladies, thank you so much for your perspectives. Um, make sure that you're taking care of yourselves through this time, because I know this is not the only talk that you're doing, and this is something constant. So we will continue to um, collectively support each other. Thank you again for coming on. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This, this is great. Thank you.